Amen. You guys can take a seat, church. It is so good to be together. I can't even tell you this is week four of our series, Fruit Trees and Fig Leaves, and I have the honor and the privilege of landing the plane. Um, two months ago, Ethan and Doug and I were in my condo, and we were daydreaming about this series, and we had a plan for it. And as Doug said, um, as we went, it's like the Holy Spirit was just kind of guiding our steps week by week. Uh, week number one, Doug made a statement. He said, we as a church are going to be advocates of the Imago Day." And it's like something just went off in our souls and we we're like, yeah, 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 that's, that's where we are heading. And so today I want to, to land the plane and answer the question, if we want to be uh, advocates of the Imago Day. Why is it so difficult for us to believe that about ourselves and believe that about others? We are a church that believe that you, no matter who you are, no matter where you are watching from, are a child of God, that you are made in his image. And I don't care what this week looked like for you. God loves you. He has plans for you. He has a purpose for you and he is ready to do exponentially more in your life than you could ever think or imagine. And that is true for all of us. But the thing is, man, it's just kind of hard to believe it sometimes, isn't it? It's tough to believe it sometimes. Where did that come from? Well, we're going to, to read Genesis 3 today and see where shame entered the picture and made it difficult for us to be image or advocates of the Imago Dei in others. Because here's the thing, man, like we wanna be advocates of the Imago Dei in others, but we can't even be advocates of the Imago Dei in ourselves sometimes, right? Does anybody ever feel that way? So, so we're gonna go to war against shame today, and I'm gonna give you some questions that you're gonna be able to take with you into your week to, to, um, to combat shame and move forward, and I could not be more excited. Our story begins Genesis 2, verse 25, where it says, the man and the woman were naked and unashamed. Right? The story of the Bible begins in a garden where Adam and Eve are living together in perfect shalom and harmony. They feel zero shame. And it's this amazing story that lasts all of two chapters because then we get to Genesis chapter three. As Doug talked about last week, there's a fruit tree. Go back and listen to that one. He covers like one of the most difficult questions really well in 30 minutes. So go listen. We are going to pick the story up in verse seven and look at the aftermath that comes after Adam and Eve eat the fruit. Genesis 3, verse 7, it says this, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate 
Verse 13, then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Titled this message simply, where did you get those fig leaves? Father, be here with us right now. Help us combat shame in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, here's my question for you. Has anybody in this room ever felt like the underdog? Anybody watching from home, wherever you are, have you ever felt like maybe it was uh, in sports or in a job interview or a relationship that you were pursuing or whatever it is? Have you ever felt like the underdog? That, um, when, I, when I say that word, first off, it reminds me of uh, uh, my Halloween costume when I was four years old that I wore when Doug and all of our buddies were firefighters and I wanted to dress up like underdog, which was this cartoon from back in the day and nobody knew who I was and it was a super confusing thing. I don't know, that's a, that's a sermon for uh, another day. But I, when I think about being the underdog, the first thing that I think about is when I was in high school, my life was basketball. Like my favorite thing to do was play basketball. Basketball, and we had a team uh, that was. How do we say this? We were, we were, we were a team. We were a very mediocre team at best. We won a, a couple of games. We lost a whole lot. But every time uh, we we like stepped onto the court, we were outmatched. We were always the underdog. And we figured out a way to to win a bunch of games that we'd had no business winning because. As the underdog, we had to take every uh, precaution that, that we could to try to find, figure out any way to have a leg up on our opponent. So what we would do is, and you guys know this, we would watch film all week, right? We would look at the team that we're going to play, and we would, we would watch them, and we'd go, okay, they're obviously bigger and better than us, but here's their weakness, right? And if we uh, uh, figure out a way to play our game, we can get a leg up on them and figure out a way to win. Well, uh, Genesis 2.25, where, where Adam and Eve are in the garden and they feel unashamed, reminds me of those high school days because here, here's the reality. We have an enemy, right? Scripture uh, in this story characterizes this enemy as the serpent, right? We could call him the Satan or the devil or the enemy or Voldemort or whatever name you want to put on the enemy. The, the reality is we have a, an enemy and, and this enemy is looking at the human beings created in the image of God going, oh no, like these guys, Adam and Eve, they're created in the image of God. There's no telling how far they're going to go, how many creative, beautiful things they are going to create. I need to, to step in and do something, right? So, so it's like Satan was watching film on Adam and Eve and he realized something. He goes, hey, uh, created in the image of God, amazing, unashamed, which means human beings were not created to feel shame. Like it's, it's interesting that, that the writer even used that word unashamed, right? Could have said Adam and Eve were both in the garden full of joy, full of love, happy as could be, but instead he, he goes with unashamed. And so the enemy, being the, the crafty enemy that he is, goes, hey, I know how to get him. 
I know how I'm going to take these guys down. We are going to introduce shame into their lives. So I, I, I picture like Satan and his demons. I have no idea how any of this works and nobody does by the way, but I picture them like huddling up for a Monday morning meeting, like coming together, like, okay guys, we gotta introduce some shame into these humans' minds today because we need to, we need to stop all this unity stuff and create some like, like, like disunity uh, amongst them, right? So make sure you make them feel ashamed for every little thing that happens because here's what shame does. Shame takes authenticity, takes human beings who are able just to be their authentic self and it makes us feel like we aren't enough and so we need to start acting, right? Well, maybe if they know that I'm funny enough, maybe if they know that I'm smart enough, right? Maybe if they know that I'm good enough at preaching, maybe if they know that I can sing well enough, right? Maybe then, maybe if I can add X, Y, or Z to my life, then people will like me. We go from in the garden being completely unashamed, completely free to be our authentic selves to just starting to act, or, or uh, if we can introduce shame into their lives, then, then they're, uh, they'll stop being so compassionate all the time with one another, and their compassion will turn into comparing. If we can get them to stop being so compassionate for each other and start comparing themselves to one another, then they'll start throwing stones at each other instead of loving one another. If we can get them to, to stop being so empathetic for each other, then, then maybe we can turn that into envy. And instead of helping one another, they'll be jealous of one another. They'll lose sight of justice for jealousy, right? This is what shame does. It's introduced into the story and everything spirals out of control. So today, what I want to do is very simply this. I want to give you three questions that I've learned to ask from Genesis 3. Three from Genesis 3. Rod, look at that. I didn't even plan uh, on that. Three questions I've learned to ask from Genesis 3 that have helped me in my life combat shame. Because I believe that if we can learn to combat shame, then the result of that is we are going to learn how to be advocates of the Imago Dei in ourselves and then from there, we are going to be able to be advocates of the Imago Dei in others. Does that sound like a plan? You guys can respond. You're in this room now. Guys, we've been preaching to an empty room for months. You got you to help me out today. Okay, question number one is this. Do you actually believe God wants to be close to you? Do you actually believe God wants to be close to you? To you, I think the obvious church answer is, well, yeah, of course, but I want you to actually think about that question a, a little bit today. Let's go back to our text. Adam and Eve eat the fruit, and it says, the, then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the coolness of the day. Before we go any further, I need to point this out. This is one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible because the fall just happened. Like everything just fell apart. And what is God doing? He's not running to get the fire extinguisher. He's not panicking. He's walking in a garden in the coolness of the day, in the evening. 
Uh, last Friday, Doug and Ethan and I were playing golf with our buddy Matt at Avery Ranch, and it was a twilight round, so it was happening uh, in the coolness of the day. In those last few holes, like I, I had my my phone off and put away, and we were in this intense competition. It was Ethan and I versus Doug and Matt, and and it was coming down to like the, the wire to the very. Last hole, I'm not going to tell you who won because it's not that important, but I will tell you that Doug and Matt lost. So, you know, you can deduce from that what you will. Matt, we still love you. Keep working on your game, man. You'll get there. Right, but we have these this like time where it just feels so peaceful and, and, and everything feels right in the world. And I love this picture of God going for a walk in the coolness of the day, even right as everything is breaking. But here's my thought experiment for you. Close your eyes for a second and imagine being in Adam and Eve's position. You hear God going for a walk in the coolness of the day, and then it says this, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called out to the man, where are you? as you were just imagining that scenario happening, what was the tone of God's voice when he said, where are you? You don't have to say it out loud, but it's an important question to ask. And in groups this week, I'm gonna gonna have you guys wrestle with that question because I think that how you answer that question, what's God's tone when he says, where are you? Tells you an awful lot about the image you have of God. A.W. Tozer, this, this 20th century um, theologian, says this. He goes, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. By the way, Tozer said a lot of really brilliant things. Sometimes I wonder if he's like up in heaven, like, guys, I wrote other books. Somebody quote something else uh, of mine, right? But that quote is so powerful, right? Because it tells us so much about the image we have of God. So what was it? Was God uh, an angry parent ready to punish? Was he an indifferent God who really didn't care what the answer to that question was? Was he an overbearing God? Was he a God ready to say to Adam and Eve, well, I told you so. What is, like, like when you think about that question, when God says, uh, Adam, where are you? What is the tone of God's voice? Because I have to admit, I've had a, a journey over the last several years, um, and, and this question has been at the core of my journey my entire life. I figured God was so mad at Adam and Eve for what they did and ready to punish them. But these days, the more that I read the Bible, the more that I wonder if God was just saying, hey, uh, buddy, we used to go for walks in the coolness of the day. Like it's the evening time and, and we usually go for walks right now and I have so much more that I wanna show you and we've only just begun this relationship together. Where'd you go? Adam, Eve, where are you? It's almost like I thought that morality had to come before proximity. Anybody know that feeling? Like, hey, if, if I get like seven days of good, clean living in, then like I can go to church this week and worship's gonna be like super powerful. 
right? But, but heaven forbid, if I, if I mess up with the morality, then I probably shouldn't even show my face because God doesn't want to be with me. Can I point out to you that after the fall, the very first question God asked Adam and Eve was not, what did you do? He asked, where are you? And I just wonder if for God, proximity comes first. If God's going, hey, Adam, Eve, we'll get to the morality in a little bit. Absolutely, we'll answer that question. But I just, I'm your loving father and I just want to be close to you. Where are you? You see how this starts to combat shame. Like think about Luke 15, the story of the prodigal son. Uh, if you know the story, a father has two sons. He sends, and one of them says, hey, I want my money now. I want my inheritance now. He goes out and he spends it on all of these things. He ends up becoming a, a slave and he's living this miserable life. So he tucks his tail between his legs and he walks back to his father, ready to, 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 to make a giant speech and go, God, or father, I messed up. I'm not worthy to be your son. Just let me be one of your hired servants. Can I please just, just live here? And if you know the story, you know what happens next, right? As the younger son is coming up the driveway, the father sees him from a long way off and he takes off at a sprint. Takes off at a sprint and he runs and he, he hugs his son and you see his son start to make his speech, right? Start to sew some fig leaves together and go, I promise I'm, I'm not that bad. And the father goes, stop it, stop it. We'll get to the morality later. I'm just glad that you're here because proximity is more important to me than morality. And so we're going to celebrate the fact that our son has come home. In fact, he says this, but the father, this is Luke 15, 22, but the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. We gotta preach about this for, for just a second. The, the son wants to sew fig leaves together and, and make a case for himself. And so the first thing the father does is put a robe on his son. None of those fig leaves here. Son, your family, you're, you're a human being, a mago day. We're gonna put the robe on you. Isaiah 61, 10, Isaiah talks about the robe of righteousness, right? So, so when you and I try to, try to, to, to uh, make ourselves, ju like justify ourselves by all of our actions, the, the, the image of God that we get in scripture is God just going, let me put the robe of my righteousness on you because it was never anything that you could have done to earn this. It was always something that I was going to do for you. So we got this younger son insecure and ready to make his case. And the first thing the father says is stop it, robe of righteousness. Then he says, hey, hey, take the ring, put this ring on your finger. My favorite moment in any wedding uh, ceremony is the, the ring part. The ring part? When I officiate him, that's what I say. Oh, it's time for the ring part. Uh, they get the rings and they, they, they put the rings on their finger. And what they're saying is, hey, whatever comes next, right? In sickness or in health whether things go really great, whether there are difficult seasons, we're in this together and would this ring be a symbol that I'm not going anywhere, right? So the father sees his son, he runs, he puts the robe of righteousness on him. Then the next thing he does is he puts the ring on his finger. He says, family, proximity before morality. We'll get to the morality later. First, we gotta talk about the proximity. We're just glad that you're home. 
And then, then he puts the sandals on his feet. Do you know that uh, in those days, remember the younger son goes out and he becomes a slave. In those days, it was custom for people when they got a slave to steal the slave's sandals. Because if you can take the slave's sandals, then they have less of a reason, less motivation to run away. Interesting, isn't it? Because this is exactly how slavery works for us, right? Like 2020 has been a year, hasn't it? It's been difficult. And I feel like for, for so many of us, like, like the, the shame has come in, like maybe an addiction has resurfaced that you thought you were done with. You thought you kicked it away long ago, but then you were quarantined by yourself, and so you turned to the, the pills or to the porn or to the, the, the pasta or to whatever it was, and now all of a sudden the shame's whispering in your, your ear, hey, you're never going to be able to beat this. You're never going to be able to get past this. This is your life now, right? This is how shame works. This is how slavery works, and some of us, I think, need to get our sandals back. We need to let our loving father go, hey, when you come back, when you're here, your family, I just quoted Olive Garden, which is an amazing place, right? And the first thing that the father does is put sandals back on his feet to go, hey, you're not stuck in these patterns anymore. You're a son. And when you are a son, we can move forward. So can I encourage somebody right now, if you feel... Like this, this addiction uh, is, is too hard for you to beat. Yes, you can beat it because you're a son, because you're a daughter. If you feel like this unemployment season is never going to end and you're not worthy of ever getting a job back, yes, you are, and you're closer than you think. Get those sandals back on your feet. Start declaring that over your life because breakthrough is coming your way. In fact, if you're feeling the resistance right now, whoever I'm talking to right now, if you're feeling the resistance right now, that means it's because you're closer than you think and the enemy is doing every last thing that he can to keep you silent. Get the sandals back on your feet. You're a son. You're a daughter. Don't let shame tell you anything different. Proximity comes first and then we get to morality. So long before God even asks Adam and Eve what you did, he goes, hey, where are you? I, I just want to be with you. And then he gets to it. Right? He goes, hey, have you eaten from the fruit? He gets to the morality part, of course. But by the way, this is such a more effective way to approach morality. When we get the proximity thing right, then morality comes way more natural and way more effective. It's like I, I remember a couple years ago I was having coffee with a good friend of mine um, who for years had a, a, a drinking problem that tore apart his family he couldn't hold down work, and it was ravishing his life. Goes through a, a, a lot, big old turning point. God's doing these great things in his life, and he gets sober. And then fast forward two months later, we're sitting down for coffee. He's two months sober. I go, hey, man, how, how are you doing? And he looks me in the eye, and I'll never forget it. Tears start welling down, down his face, and he goes, Ryan, it's like, it's like I used to see the world in black and white. Now all of a sudden I see it in like high def color. It's like I can think so much clearer now. I can remember things now. I have more energy. I just feel good. And we had this great conversation uh, about, yeah, of course. Like when we live the way that God intended for us to live, we, life just works better that way, right? 
Like, like the morality is still super important, yes and amen. It's just that we got to get the order right. Proximity first, and then morality. So do you actually believe that God wants to be close to you? We start actually believing that. All of a sudden, shame starts losing its grip on us. All of a sudden, we start advocating for the Imago Dei inside of us. And in turn, we start becoming advocates of the Imago Dei and others. Do we see how this works? Question number two. Do you have people in your life who will advocate for the Imago Dei in you? If you remember back to the garden scene, uh, as soon as God asked, what did you guys do? Blame. It's like a game of hot potato, isn't it? Like, like Adam, what did you do? Oh, well, the woman who, by the way, you gave to me, so this is kind of on you, God, right? And then Eve's like, no, it was the serpent, right? And no, nobody wants to say these words. I was wrong. That single sentence probably would have fixed a whole lot of problems, but instead they both doubled down and tried to justify themselves. Why? Because of shame. They were worried that they, that they weren't good enough, that they wouldn't be accepted, that they wouldn't be loved, and so they all tried to get the shame off of them, right, by blaming other people. This guy named Tim Mackey pointed out a couple of weeks ago, I was listening to the, the Bible Project podcast, and he goes, isn't it interesting? He always says these profound things in like a very simple manner. He goes, isn't it interesting that they went to the tree originally to eat the fruit, and that's what caused the problem, and then they went back to the tree to get fig leaves to try to fix the problem. And then they went and hid in the trees to try to, to, to hide themselves from any punishment, right? It's like this is how shame works. It keeps us just continuing to go back to the same source, trying to fix the problem with the same consciousness that created it. Anyone told a lie and then have to tell another lie to cover up for that lie? And then another lie to cover up for that lie and another lie? And it's like before you know it, your life is like a, a series of like a made-up story that you're trying to cover up for. And if you would just say, hey, I was wrong, all of a sudden you're, you're set free. You feel like you don't even need the gift of discernment to feel how that phrase like shifts the atmosphere in the room. I was wrong. Or, hey, how about this? Hey, uh, because of how I grew up, I can't see that there might be an injustice happening at the moment, but I can't get past the point that, that, that there are a whole bunch of people that disagree with me, and so maybe I'm wrong. And maybe what I can do is just show up humbly and listen and learn and ask questions and be a fellow human being. That is the way forward. But shame keeps us from going there. Adam and Eve just start blaming. Just start playing the blame game. Are you surrounded by critiquers? Or are you surrounded by people who love you enough to say, hey, let's, let's create a way forward, right? Like, like the people that we have in our circle, are they advocates of the Imago Dei in you? Or are they just playing scared? 
trying to do their own thing over here and letting you be your, yourself. Having people in our circle who will be advocates for the Imago Day in us is absolutely essential. I know this personally. Um, so I'll just go first because a couple of months ago, um, Doug, Doug and E, I've, I've said, hey, you have full right to say whatever you want to me whenever because I trust them and because I know them. And um, we were meeting as a, a staff, Emily and Sam as well, like we do every Thursday. And um, I, they, they, in love, pointed something out to me. They go, hey, you may not see this in yourself. It's a blind spot. That's why we call them blind spots. You go, hey, you used to be the most optimistic person I've ever known. Hopeful optimist. Where did all of this pessimism come from? I don't know if anyone can relate to that. Pessimism is one of those fig leaves that I've learned to develop over the years. And so they go, hey, where'd you get that fig leaf? Like, where did that pessimism come from? And it stings, right? But, but then you take a step back and you look at yourself and you go, Oh, yeah. Like, yeah, that, that is there. Okay, where did I get that fig leaf? Where did that come from? Well, there's all this disappointment from the past, right? There's all these people that, that have let me down in different ways and, and whatever. And so as a survival mechanism, I just became pessimistic. Because if I keep my expectations low, then I'll stop getting let down all the time, right? Well, the problem is that's no way to live. That's not the gospel, that's not, that's not the way forward, right? And, and so they in love point it out to me and I get to work, man. I go, okay, I see it now, so I'm gonna start combating it. So I've got my gratitude journal that I write in every day. Uh, Adam's been, been living with me and we, uh, we do insanity every morning, which is just brutal. But then right after that, we go out to my backyard and we, we list off things that we're, that we're thankful for. And our first one is usually that I didn't die during insanity, right? But, but then we, we go on from there, and it's like I'm seeing things start to turn. I'm a recovering pessimist, right? It's not me anymore. It's not who I am anymore. I'm getting back to the optimism. Why? Because I have people in my corner who will be advocates for the Imago Day in me. Donald Miller uh, is one of my favorite writers, and... Uh, he recently wrote a book, not recently, a couple years ago, wrote a book called Scary Close. Scary Close, and it's all about uh, people are helping, helping drop the act and, and, and pursue like actual relational intimacy, right? So, so he writes this book and he goes, there's a reason I wasn't married until I was 42. Here's all of the things that I had. I kept hiding behind these masks or hiding behind these fig leaves. I bought it for a friend, by the way. I haven't, haven't read it yet. Um, I'm kidding. Uh, so, so Donald Miller writes this book, and what he says in chapter one is he goes, I have this friend in my life named Bob. We find out later it's Bob Goff, which is, of course, it is. Like love does, everybody always Bob Goff. Like cool, Don, cool that you can just name drop Bob Goff. That's awesome. But Bob would call Don on a regular basis, and he would go, hey, Don, you're good at relationships. And Don would be over here like, you have no idea. Like, you have no idea what my track record is. I'm not good at relationships. And Bob would call him again and just go, Don, you're good at relationships. And Don would be like, you're obviously not paying attention to my life. You're not seeing the trajectory of my life. Bob, you don't know me. And Bob would just go, hey, Don, 
You're good at relationships. And over time, it's like Don actually started to believe it, right? It's like some that this truth of Bob advocating for the Imago Day and Don started to sink down into his soul and he started to actually believe it. And I won't give away the, the, the rest of the book, but it's about his journey toward freedom and understanding intimacy in relationships. Why? Because he had a friend who was willing to advocate for the Imago Day in him. Now, Bob wasn't lying to Don. Doug talked about this last week. It doesn't mean we just make things up, right? It doesn't mean that we just unconditionally tell people that they're okay no matter what they're doing. What, what Bob understood is that Don was created in the image of God, which means he's created in the image of, of a relational being. Which means that deep down inside, Don actually is really good at relationships. It's just that it's covered up with a whole bunch of shame and stuff that's not supposed to be there, right? So what Bob was able to do is he was able to look past all that stuff and call out the Imago Day in Don. Do you have people in your life like Bob? Have a friend like Bob. And, and, and parents, I'm not a parent, so I never get up here and, and talk about parenting. But one thing I can say with authority, um, because I had it uh, demonstrated to me my entire life, um, is parents, believe in your kids. Speak the best into your kids' lives. Doug and I, uh, we, my college buddy Doug and I have, have the most amazing parents, and they will be the first ones to tell you that they didn't get it right all the time. Of course not. But here's what they did. They believed in us, like more than we believe in us. They believe in this church more than we believe in this church most of the time, right? It's just like unconditional from the time we were young. You can do that. You got that. You're going to win that game. Hey, that sermon's going to be great. I was getting texts from them today. It's, you're going to crush it. We're praying for you, right? They just kept telling us that you can do it. You can do it. You can do it. And somewhere along the way, we just started believing it. It's what happens when you have people in your life who will be advocates for the Imago Day in you. And the last one, and I'll end here. Question number three, are you an advocate of the Imago Day in yourself? So do you believe that God actually wants to be close to you? Do you have people in your corner who will be advocates for the Imago Day in you? And then lastly, We've been saying this all service. Are you an advocate of the Imago Day in yourself? Because I'm telling you, you won't be able to be an advocate for the Imago Day in others successfully if you're not first an advocate of the Imago Day in yourself. Doug says it all the time. We are our own most important preachers. I don't care how many podcasts you got going on, nobody preaches to you more than you preach to you. So what's the message that you're telling yourself day in and day out? Because here's the truth, God is a creator and you are made in the image of a creator God. So yes, you are creative. God forgives quickly and you are made in his image. So yes, you can let go of bitterness. God is just. And you were made in his image, so yes, you do have a voice. God is love. And you were made in his image, so yes, you can love and believe in yourself and love and believe in your neighbor. And man, I'm telling you, we, we got to get this because there's an older brother in that story of the prodigal son too, isn't there? 
You know the story, younger son comes back, proximity more important than morality, but the older brother is off in the fields continuing to work, work, work. It's his fig leaf. It's, his, it's, it's how he proves himself to his father. And he comes back after a long, hard day and he hears the singing and the dancing and he goes, wait, 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 why are we throwing a party? And the father's like, your son's home. And the, the older son's like, I, I do this every day. Like, where's my party? The father looks at him and he says, hey, uh, everything that I have is yours. You're always with me. And then the story ends. Jesus just drops that line. And then he's like, hey, let's go get some lunch. You know, like right when we're on, on the edge of our seat going, wait, so what happens? Give me some closure. Does the older son go in and celebrate with everybody? Jesus is just like, oh, uh, well, he's welcome to. It used to frustrate me about Jesus. Now I realize it's one of the most brilliant moves ever because what's Jesus doing? He's going, well, he's welcome to and so are you. He's holding up a mirror and he's going, I want you to see yourself in this story because the truth is I'm the older brother and the younger brother and I'm the one who has a loving father and I'm the one who's learning how to believe like it's actually true. I'm the one who's learning to advocate for the Imago Day in myself enough to realize that the father actually loves me even if I ran off to a far off place or if I'm trying to work my way into his favor. He goes, put the fig leaves away. Where did you get those fig leaves? You don't need those anymore. When you're here, you're family. We have to learn how to preach to ourselves because I don't know about you, but I just, like depending on the day, I'm the younger or the older son, sometimes both within an hour, right? The beauty is you have a loving father who created you in his image. We gotta shake off the shame and start preaching that over our lives because it's true. So true, in fact, that, that in Genesis 3, when they, when they eat from the tree, right in that moment, God goes, hey, um, I love my creation so much that I'm ready to go to whatever length I have to, to make sure that we get to go for walks in the coolness of the day together again. So there's a shame problem here, absolutely. I need to go to great lengths to make sure we do something about that. And Jesus is up in heaven and he steps out and he goes, hey, I got this. I'm gonna come to the earth and I'm going to live a sinless life. And I'm going to walk around. And by the way, 90% of the time, Jesus just sat down and ate meals with people who didn't look like him. Like imagine being Jesus's PR guy. Hey, Jesus, we just had that, that like big miracle, that big healing over in Jerusalem. We should probably get back there and capitalize on it. Hey, you know, I'm, I'm eating a meal with my new friend Zacchaeus right now. I'm hearing about his story. I think I'm just gonna stay here. Yeah, okay, that's cool, Jesus. We're supposed to love and all that. I get that, but make sure you wrap that up within the next hour um, because we need to get back before sun goes down so we can capitalize on this momentum and increase our, our platform by 10% today. Yeah, I don't, we're, we're just kind of getting into his backstory and I don't know, he's been misunderstood most of his life, but he's amazing. You should get to know him. 
He, he's got this amazing future and I'm believing it in him. And so I'm just going to be an advocate for the Imago Day in him because by the way, Jesus was content enough and secure enough in who he was to not have to make everything about him. But instead when he sees injustice, he can just go sit with those who are hurting. That's what Jesus did for his time, uh, his, his ministry. And then in the greatest act of love of all time, he lays down his life for me and for you. Paul says, Paul says that, that God took him who knew no sin, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, and, and had him become sin so that you and I can become the righteousness of God. That's true about us. That's true about each one of us. Jesus took the shame for us on the cross so that we may become the righteousness of God. So when we put our faith in him, what we receive is God's righteousness. The shame goes away and we learn how to every day start walking in more and more confidence and seeing the image of God everywhere we go. So as we sing this song uh, again, I wanna issue this invitation whether it's for the first time or the 10,000th time, would you come back to the cross? Would you come back to what Jesus did for you, the greatest act of love of all time? Would you be reminded today that God is crazy about you, that proximity is more important than morality? We'll get to the morality later, but let's first get the proximity. Like I actually want to be with you. And then would you get some people in your corner who will advocate for the Imago Day in you? Then would you start advocating for the Imago Day in yourself because it's true? Because man, we're moving forward, church. We're moving forward. And where we're going, shame's not gonna help. So let's get it away. Let's end this series by saying no to shame and saying yes to, to our identity as sons and daughters of God as he works in our lives and restores our souls so that we can move forward together in Jesus' name. So Father God, we love you so much. Lord, I thank you for every soul in this room. I thank you for every soul watching. Would you remind us right now, Right now, Father, that you love us, that you care for us, that you're crazy about us, that you have a plan and a purpose for our lives. And as we come back to the cross and remember what you did for us, would you speak this new identity over us? Shame off. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.